So our scripture lesson for this morning comes to us from the New Testament book of Acts, chapter 20, verses 7 through 12. And just as a warning before I get started this morning, this is a little bit of a strange reading. Uh, it may be a little confusing at first. You may wonder why I've picked it, but of course we're going to get into it and hopefully get some explanation to it all. So listen now for God's word to you. On the first day of the week, when we met to break bread, Paul was holding a discussion with them. Since he intended to leave the city the next day, he continued speaking until midnight. There were many lamps in the room upstairs where we were meeting. A young man named Eutychus was sitting in the window, and he began to sink off into a deep sleep while Paul talked still longer. Overcome with sleep, he fell to the ground three floors below and was picked up dead. But Paul went down and, bending over him, took him into his arms and said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is still in him. When Then Paul went upstairs, and after he had broken bread and eaten, he continued to converse with them until dawn, and then he left. Meanwhile, they had taken the boy away alive and were not a little comforted. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So there are a lot of stories in the Bible that have become staples in Sunday school classrooms across the country, and they've been staples in Sunday school classrooms for years now. Uh, stories like Noah's Ark, which I've kind of always actually been a little confused as to how that ended up being a, a children's story. I mean, in the story, uh, God is so upset with the way that human beings are acting that God decides he needs to start all over again and wipe out the entire world with a global flood, except for one family, Noah, his wife, his sons, and his uh, in-laws, and all the animals that they can bring onto the ark, this giant wooden ship that they're going to use kind of as the sanctuary, the safety during this flood that covers the entire earth. <clears throat> and it's not really a good children's story, in my opinion. I, I remember the, the church that I served before this in the education wing, they had this kind of cartoony-looking picture of Noah's Ark, this big giant mural of these animals who were smiling with giant eyes, and look, they looked so happy as, the, as they floated along in the ark and the rest of the world drowned beneath them. Uh, it's not the sort of story that I would imagine telling to my kids, and yet it's, be, it's become a staple in Sunday school classrooms across the country. And then there's the story of David and Goliath. David is this young shepherd at this point, and Goliath is this giant Philistine warrior, and they're going to do battle together, and whoever wins, wins the victory for their side, either the Israelites or for the, the Philistines. And um, David lacks size and strength and experience, and yet he wins because God is on his side. And we still use that image of David and Goliath in our common vernacular, this we often use it when it comes to sports, when our team isn't as good or when they lack experience or the necessary, necessary good players. We, we talk about David fighting Goliath. Can David beat Goliath once again? And, and the Lions often find themselves in that position, don't they? Uh, I'm not with you all this morning in person, yet I still can't resist the opportunity to make fun of the Lions just a little bit, even though I have no room to talk because my football team is probably far worse than the Lions are this year. And then there's the story of Jonah and the big fish, Jonah running away from God when God calls him to do something he doesn't want to do. And uh, Jonah gets swallowed by a big fish sort of as a punishment. And then uh, three days later, he emerges out and he goes to the place God calls him to go. You know, these are Sunday school staples, ones that we, if you grew up in the church, ones that you heard over and over again. And, and we're really good about turning these Sunday school stories into kind of these cute little children's tales, even though... I'm not always sure that they're in their original form. They're really good at being children's stories. But my sneaking suspicion this morning 
is that even if you grew up in the church, you probably have not heard the story that I read for you this morning, the story of Paul and Eutychus. I, I hadn't even heard of it until sometime in the past year. It's an odd and strange story at first glance, a story about the Apostle Paul and a young man named Eutychus. Paul is one of the most important figures in the New Testament, uh, and he is in the city of Troas uh, along the western shore of modern-day Turkey. It's Sunday, and the whole congregation has gathered together for worship. Uh, church, of course, looked a lot different in those days. There wasn't a building that was assigned as a church building in those days. Uh, they gathered together in homes. There was, there was worship in, in the homes of the community, and usually it took place in one of the the homes of one of the wealthier members of the community, someone who could accommodate large numbers of people. And in those days, Sunday wasn't uh, a day of rest. It wasn't the second day of the weekend like we have uh, today. Uh, because remember that as the Jesus movement starts, as what becomes Christianity is starting in the New Testament, uh, these early Jesus followers, most of them are Jewish, and they consider themselves to still be Jewish. They participate in worship in the synagogue still. They participate in the Sabbath, the day of rest on Saturday. But on Sundays, which is a work day, they would still gather together. And, and often that happened in the early morning hours before the workday began. But it seems like in this story, they've gathered together in the evening after work. And that worship included the Lord's Supper, the breaking of, uh, the breaking of bread. But Back in those days, it was an actual meal. It wasn't the sort of symbolic bread and juice that we've started using these days. And, and that, that worship, of course, included teaching and preaching. And Paul is doing that in the story. He is preaching. He's giving a message that evening at church. Paul is leaving the next day. He's continuing on in his missionary journey. But before he goes, he has a message to deliver to this congregation. And Paul has a lot to say. Did you catch it when I was reading the story that Paul speaks to them until midnight? So after work, work let's just use a modern example, work ends at five o'clock and church begins. Paul's preaching to them for probably six hours. Um, so I want you all to keep that in mind. Whenever it feels like the sermon's going on just a little bit too long, it could always be way way worse. And while he's preaching this never-ending sermon, there is a young man there named Eutychus who is participating in worship. And Eutychus is sitting on the ledge of a third-story window, and as Paul drones on and on and on and on, Eutychus, imagine this, starts to get really sleepy. And who could blame him? All of us would be sleepy by that point. We would have been sleepy way before the six-hour mark of his sermon. And so as he's sitting there, he finally falls asleep, and he falls out of the third-story window, and he hits the street, and he dies on impact. At least that's kind of how the story indicates it going. Now, I've preached some snoozers in my life. I've preached some sermons that deserve to be burned and buried in the backyard, but never have I had the experience where someone falls asleep and falls out of the window. And this is what gets Paul to finally stop preaching to finally stop his sermon. And he rushes down to where the young man Eutychus is laying and he picks him up, he says, don't be afraid, he still has life in him, which maybe means Eutychus isn't actually dead but is seriously injured or something like that. But whatever it is, Paul either raises him to, back to life or brings him back to health, whatever it might be. And 
But then immediately, Paul goes right back upstairs and continues to preach his sermon. He continues to talk about whatever he was talking about that was apparently so boring that it bored Eutychus to death. And it says that he keeps on preaching until dawn. A 12-hour sermon that doesn't seem real, that seems almost like a parody of the real thing. It, there was a, something that was spread around social media sometime in the last few years that said there's a fine line between a long sermon and a hostage situation. And, and Paul seems to be squarely on the other side of the line that this is a hostage situation. And then the story ends by with us being told that Eutychus was not the least bit comforted. It's an odd story, to say the least. But the reason why I chose this story this morning is not for us to kind of have a giggle at the weird things that we can find in the Bible sometimes. But we turn to this story because we have been exploring together who God is calling us to be. That we are preparing ourselves for the Visioning Summit that's taking place next Saturday. And this is a reminder for you all to, to, um, to sign up for that if you haven't already done that. We, we are asking ourselves the question of who is God calling us to be for the next five years? Who is Greenfield supposed to be? What goals, what dreams, what ideas do we have about the sort of church that we're called to be in? And this sermon series has been all about me offering my reflections to you all about who I sense God calling us to be, inviting you into that conversation of who God is calling us to be. And it is apparent to me, it is obvious to me, that as a congregation, we are called to be people who reach out to the next generation, the younger generation. And so this story, as odd and strange as it might be, for me is a is sort of a parable. It's a, a, a metaphor for the challenges and the opportunities that are present in fulfilling that calling of reaching out to the next generation. That Eutychus, for me, is a symbolic character. That he is symbolic of all of the young people in the church. Those who are children, youth, young adults, young parents, young families, Eutychus is symbolic of that group of people. And the question is, how do we engage with Eutychus, those younger generations in our church and those younger generations that maybe aren't here quite yet? That question of engaging with younger generations finds itself within this larger narrative of American Christianity. That for decades now, the story has been plotted by researchers it is one of the shrinking religiously affiliated group of people. That those who are part of organized religion is becoming a smaller and smaller segment of society. And what we see instead is the rise of what's known as the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S, the, the people who have no faith, who are not adherents to any organized or institutional religion. And also the growth of what's known as the duns, the people who were raised in faith but have since left that behind. The nuns and the duns are the, a really significant section of the millennials, my generation, and the generation after me, uh, Gen Z. That they are increasingly less religious. And so for decades now, since like the 1960s or so, there have kind of been these doomsday predictions about the demise of mainline denominations like ours. We are seeing as people are becoming less and less religious that 
Um, the average age in our congregations is going up. That the largest demographic in the Peace USA, for example, are those who are age 65 and older. Declining congregational membership, increasing ages, this is the larger narrative that's taking place within American Christianity. And we as Greenfield Presbyterian Church are not immune to these trends. Um, the self-study that was published as part of our pastoral search process, uh, the thing that was published to help in the, in the process of searching for a new pastor, uh, what it revealed was that 80% uh, of Greenfielders are over the age of 55. Um, and so the challenge is sort of right there in front of us, revealed by the numbers. The question is being asked, what are we going to do about the aging of our congregation? And it's not that we don't love or care for those who are over the age of 55 or don't want their value their insights or anything like that. But it leaves us asking the question, how are we reaching the next generation? And this, I think, is the greatest challenge that sits in front of us. And maybe there's a comfort in the fact that we are not alone in asking this question. That seemingly every mainline church is asking this question. How do we bring younger folks back into the church? Having gone through the interview process in our denomination a couple of times now, and having several conversations with lots of different, different uh, uh, pastor nominating committees, seemingly every conversation I can remember includes this question. If we call you to be your pastor, our pastor, how are you going to bring younger people into the church? And that question is always asked with a lot of anxiety. And honestly, I can understand that. It's a question that I was asked by Greenfield's pastor nominating committee. They asked me, how would you help us to reach out to younger folks? As I look back at the older visioning documents from previous times where Greenfield took on a, a visioning process, um, this was one of the goals then too. The goal of reaching out to younger generations, bringing younger people into the church, creating uh, ministries that engage with younger folks. And so the question is, how do we do that? How do we engage and reach out and bring younger people into the church? And this is where I have to apologize for how I'm going to disappoint you because I don't have an easy, clear-cut answer for you. I wish that I had a five-point plan about how to get young people flooding back into the church, but then I would have a lot more money from all the consulting I would be doing, all the book writing I would be doing, advising other churches on how to get younger people back into the church. I'll tell you what I told the PNC in the interview process. That the answer is not as simple as hiring a millennial pastor in his 30s with a young family. That I alone, simply by my age and my generation, am not the answer or the key to getting young people back into the church. I think that sometimes that mindset exists within churches as they're in the hiring process. That if we hire somebody who's young, maybe they'll help us and they'll be the answer and the, the magic thing to get young people back into the church. Now, I don't think that the PNC or any of you had that expectation of me, but I think it's worth mentioning that simply having a young pastor is not enough. The answer is also not necessarily 
creating a worship service that looks like a rock concert with electric guitars, dark lighting, uh, a smoke machine, and a pastor who wears leather pants. And I say no, this is not necessarily the answer because every context is different, and I can imagine some context where that makes a lot of sense, but I'm not sure the right answer for us is that I start wearing leather pants and we bring a smoke machine into the sanctuary. How we answer that question of how we engage younger people, how we bring younger people back into the church, I think requires a lot more thoughtfulness than sort of the shallow solutions that are often offered to this question. It requires us, I think, to be a little bit more self-critical. And whatever answers we come up with, they carry no guarantees of success. There is no answer to this question. We are all still figuring it out kind of in real time. But the hope, I think, is that there is a place for us to start. And so in order for us to start answering that question, where I think we can start, I want us to, to come back to the story of Paul and Eutychus. And there are three things I want you to notice in this story. Number one, I want you to take notice of place. Notice the place that Eutychus occupies within the worshiping community. Eutychus, this young man, this person who I take as symbolic of younger people in the church, is sitting on the window ledge, on the periphery, on the margins of the worshiping community. That his place is really no place. He kind of touches it tangentially, but he's not really fully within it. And that so much so that he is literally in danger of falling out of the community, out of the worshiping community. And so as we consider that calling to younger generations, I think what we need to where we need to start is to take notice of the places that they occupy in our community. Are they towards the center of our communal life, of our worshiping life, or are they somewhere located on the periphery? Are they leaders in worship? Are they part of the, the leadership team of the church that helps to make decisions? Do we, do we entrust that to them? There was something that happened here at Greenfield, uh, I think, that demonstrated just how powerful this moving of young people from the periphery towards the center can be. And it happened in a seemingly small way. And I know that not all of you go to the coffee hour after the 11 o'clock service. But earlier this year, maybe sometime in the spring, a couple of our Christian education folks decided to take the kids' table that was at that time sitting sort of on the outer edge of the fellowship space to take that table and to move it into the center where all of the other tables are, where all the other, where all the adults sit. It used to be literally on the periphery of our fellowship time. And now it sits somewhere in the center, right where the rest of us gather for worship, right where all of us are participating in the life of the church. And so now there's this little community of two, three, four, and five-year-olds who sit together at that table and they often have cupcake frosting all over their face. But they're not off to the side. They're right there in the center where the rest of communal life takes place. And it is a seemingly small act, but it is incredibly significant. The moving of young people from the periphery to the center of our fellowship time. And it is a beautiful thing to watch and observe. It, it is in a very real way communicating to our young people that they have a place 
in what the rest of the community is doing. That they're not just off to the side, but they're part of what is happening with everybody else. Check it out sometime. Check it out sometime at the 11 o'clock coffee hour. Go see that Eutychus is not sitting on the window ledge, but he is sitting in the middle of the congregation. And that should help us to begin to ask and to begin to think about the ways that our, our, our young people, where are they sitting? Are they sitting on the periphery? Not just in a literal sense, but also in a metaphorical sense. Are there ways to center them in the life of community? And this leads me to my second point, the second thing I want you to notice in the story. Eutychus is already there. Eutychus is already a part of the community. And so the question is, how is Eutychus being cared for as someone who is already a participant in that community? How is he being ministered to, cared for, loved, supported as a young person who is already part of the church? For example, how are we a source of support for young families, many of whom live away from extended family in our own church? As I've watched and observed this congregation, it is apparent to me how much Greenfield loves and cares for its young people. Those of you who are older, uh, you can provide an incredible source of support for those young, younger people who are already here, for those younger generations that are already here. You can, in many ways, function sort of like an extended family. I think what is beautiful about Greenfield is that our children don't just have biological grandparents or aunts or uncles or cousins, but they have this sort of extended family, this sort of beautiful chosen family, this beautiful place of support and growing support. The, one of the reasons why uh, we as a congregation started this young families group that was supposed to have its inaugural event yesterday, but unfortunately with COVID we had to cancel it, was that we started to notice that, that there was this community of younger families and younger people that was forming and they needed a place to connect beyond just Sunday morning, a chance for support and care and fellowship with one another. So if our calling is to younger generations, and I believe that is our calling, we can start by noticing Eutychus as he's already here. We can start by noticing those young folks, that younger generation that's already here among us. And third, are we offering a message that connects with the lives of young people. You know, Paul, I think, in this story deserves a lot of criticism, a sermon that drones on for 12 whole hours. And whatever he was saying could not have been that important or that interesting or connected that much with Eutychus because it left him literally bored to death. So in pursuit of this calling of the younger generation, I think that we have to be a little bit self-critical is the message of the church, and I mean more than just the sermon, is the message of the church, the, the ministries, the proclamations, the ways that we worship, the ways that we engage with the world beyond the church walls, does it connect with younger folks? Is what we are doing here something that younger generations want to be part of? And that is a much more challenging question, not only to, because it forces us to be self-critical, but it also forces us to kind of set aside our own preferences for a second. It's challenging also because young people are not a monolith. Young people want something different depending on the person, just like every other generation of people. And so I think what's needed is to stop and to listen, to listen to the perspective of younger folks, 
What questions are they asking? What struggles do they face? How do they want to connect with God? How do they want to engage with the world beyond the church? What might have happened if Paul had stopped and listened to Eutychus, taken seriously his desires, his passions, his insights, the ways that he wanted to be a follower of Jesus? Listening, I think, is crucial because this question of engaging with younger people can produce so much anxiety that we well i think it sometimes leave ourselves feeling like we have to do something anything to keep young people in the church to bring young people to church and and so we start throwing jello at the wall and seeing what sticks and we start taking wild guesses at what young people might want or need and this is usually when we start bringing out the electric guitars and we have some shiny new young adult ministry with a kooky name all in an effort to bring in younger people but I think in those moments, it's wise to take a deep breath, to calm the anxiety, to slow down, and to listen in an effort to understand. In my own personal experience, I grew up in non-denominational evangelical Christianity. I grew up in a, a version of Christianity that, that had the sort of contemporary feel to it. The pastor played in the worship band every single Sunday with his 12-string guitar and uh, we had drums, there was a coffee bar right there in the sanctuary. But the sermons were this kind of steady dose of what we had to believe in order to be Christian. And so by the time that I graduated from college, I was sort of disillusioned with the Christianity that I had grown up with. I had some really big questions that I wanted to ask, but there really was no space for me to ask them because they were sort of deemed as heretical. My, my own theology was shifting my own growth and, and desire and, and dreams for social justice were developing at this point. And so after I graduated, I ended up in, in an Episcopal church. The very opposite, I think, of what young people or what other people assume young people want. I was 22 years old, and yet I was drawn in by this sort of ancient liturgy that had considerably more depth to it than any form of worship that I had ever experienced. That community let me ask the questions that I longed to ask without deeming me a, a heretic. In fact, a lot of them were thinking those kinds of things already anyway. They had a, a social consciousness that, that spoke to my growing passion for social justice. They, they had no worship band, they had a pipe organ, but they allowed me to connect with God and with Christ in a way that I had never connected before, in a way that I desperately, desperately needed. And even after I have been gone from that church for almost 10 years, and I'm no longer an Episcopalian, the, the members of that congregation, many of the members of that congregation, are still some of the most supportive people I have in my life. And I share this anecdote with you to say that sometimes what we assume young folks want is not actually what they want. And in my own story, what I needed, what I wanted, was not to be entertained, but I needed a place that had some depth, a place that allowed me to ask the questions I needed to ask, a, a place that allowed me to meet Jesus again as if for the first time, even though I had grown up in the church, to meet Jesus again for the first time. I mean, that's my story, and others may have very different stories. But the question on my mind is, is what might emerge if we entered into this conversation with a sense of calm? a sense of, of listening to understand. What is it that young folks are looking for? Are we offering something that connects 
with their lives. If Paul had stopped and listened to Eutychus, what might he have said? How might the church in Troas be different? How might we be different if we listened to those young folks among us and sought to offer a church that connected with their lives? We are called to be, and I believe this with all my heart, we are called to be a church that reaches out to, that connects with the next generation, the younger generation. And this, I think, is the most challenging thing that we have in front of us as we are looking ahead at the next five years. But I also think it's the one that, that is the most important. I think it's the one that offers the most exciting possibilities. It's a question about the future of our congregation. What about Eutychus? What about the young people who are here or who might be here? Are we creating and cultivating a space for them that's at the very center, the very heart of our, our life together? Are we caring for, nurturing, showing love and support to those young folks who are already here among us? Are we seeking to listen intentionally and sincerely to what is it that young people are looking for? What is their life experience? How might we be a church that, that connects with the things that they need, connects with the lives that they are living. May we see the challenge and may we accept the opportunity and may we build a church together, not just for the here and now, but a church for the future. May we look ahead with courage and with hope. Thanks be to God. Amen.